Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. February, as you know, is Black History Month, and to honor Florida's own history, I want to tell you about one of the most fascinating and crucial figures in American history who just happens to be one of the most fascinating and crucial figures in Florida history as well. A man who was not even born in Florida, but had a profound impact on our history. His name was Josiah T. Walls. Born in Virginia in 1842, Josiah was born into slavery. As he reached adulthood during the American Civil War, Josiah was quote-unquote conscripted into the Confederate Army as so many other enslaved people were at that time. Josiah saw battle with the Confederates, and during the Battle of Yorktown, which ran for a month in the spring of 1862, Josiah was captured. Once he made it to the Union Army, Josiah enlisted into a remarkable infantry regiment of the era, the U.S. Colored Troops. Nearly 180,000 men made up the U.S. Colored Troops throughout its existence, a complicated segment of the Union Army that helped bring the Union to victory by 1865. Once in those troops, Josiah Walls rose in the ranks to first sergeant. During his service, his connection to Florida truly began when he fought in the Florida Campaign, a chapter of our history we will absolutely be exploring in detail at a later date. Josiah also married a woman from Florida, Helen Ferguson of Noonansville, a small town in Alachua County. It was in Alachua County that Josiah and Helen settled after the war. By the time the war was over, Josiah was not even 23, with his whole life ahead of him. He took advantage of the opportunity and soon found himself involved in politics. That's when his real legacy began. Reconstruction began across the country, building a new country after the sins of the transatlantic slave trade, sorting out new laws and economics that would drive the country forward. Florida had to figure out where to go from here, and there was a new party on the scene. The Republican Party was brand new, known at the time as the party of Abraham Lincoln, and Walls joined said party in 1868, being elected as a state legislator, one of the first black state legislators in Florida. But he only served for a few months because a special election was held to replace a state senator, and on the day before his 26th birthday, he was elected a Florida state senator. He remained there for two years, but his aspirations took him even higher. In the 1870 election, Josiah won a crucial election. He became the first black person from Florida to serve in the United States Congress. How he got there was a complicated bit of politicking, which we'll have to talk about another time. Josiah's life is unbelievably interesting. I, I can't believe there hasn't been like a movie or something about him because he's just a very, very interesting person. He served in Congress for about five years with a little month-long break in 1873. It's a long story, but he was eventually unseated. After that, he would return to the state Senate of Florida. But during this era, Josiah somehow blazed another new trail at the same time. On top of his fascinating military service and his career in state and national politics, Josiah also gets the unique title of being the first black newspaper publisher in the state of Florida. In 1873, when he was still serving in Congress, Josiah actually purchased a newspaper, a white newspaper. He named it, appropriately, The New Era. It became the first black-owned newspaper in the state of Florida. Though the paper is 150 years old, there are still digitized copies of it floating around, evidence of the profound impact of Josiah T. Walls, even now. But he was not the last black newspaper publisher in Florida. Eatonville had a pair of their own, Jacksonville had a dozen or so, Miami a half dozen, Orlando two. Some of these papers still exist to this day, having never truly ended their publication, some of which began back as far as the 1920s. 
the history of these papers, the ones that came and went through the last century, they are always revealing about the towns that they represented and the people who sought to bring these papers to life. There are so many that we will just have to explore in the future, so many different chapters of how black newspapers brought the news to black communities, the stories that white newspapers just weren't covering at the time. It was a unique process, so many different chapters to this, and, and we'll definitely come back to it. But one of the most tragic things about this is that these black newspapers were far less likely to be preserved and digitized in the modern day as white newspapers. You can find white newspapers in droves. I use newspapers.com for nearly every episode of this show. Those papers, they're cataloged to an insane degree. But you'd be amazed how many black newspapers just didn't survive. The black newspapers never got that respect, despite their proliferation after the Civil War and throughout the Civil Rights Movement. There's one newspaper in particular that I am particularly sad that has been lost. Much of its archive does not really exist anymore, only a few bits of it. And that is because there was one particular writer who published in that newspaper and contributed to its existence. That newspaper is the Fort Pierce Chronicle, and that writer is our old friend, Zora Neale Hurston. Every year and every February, we dive into the history of one of my favorite figures in Florida history, an iconic black American writer and one of the most influential anthropologists in American history, the unparalleled Zora Neale Hurston. Raised in Eatonville, Florida, known as the first black town in America, Zora went on to write books, articles, essays, plays, everything about life for African Americans in Florida, in the South, and in the United States. Two years ago, we dove into her anthropological studies. Last year, we explored her theatrical career. And this year, we're going to take a look at an important chapter near the end of her life and how it coincides with another crucial but forgotten chapter of Florida's history. But first, as always, I must recommend a bit of Zora's writing to you. This time, it is an essay. I will include a link for you to read it in the episode description. You have to give it a read, at least to understand not just what Zora was feeling at the time, at this particular time in her life, but what many other black writers like Zora were experiencing and feeling uh, in 1950, post-World War II. So, in April of 1950, Zora published an article in a publication called The Negro Digest. The title of this article was plainly stated, quote, what white publishers won't print, end quote. Right on the money. She was always straight to the point. If you have a moment, please give it a read, pause the show, come back after you've checked it out, and, and we'll talk about it. Zora lambasted about how difficult it was to get her work published in magazines owned by white publishers, saying that the life of black Americans should matter to white readers as much as black readers. But white publishers, as Zora puts it, had a, quote, lack of curiosity, end quote. She makes her case clear. Publishers don't publish stories about black Americans or really any, quote, non-Anglo-Saxon peoples, end quote, because they know that the white public just wouldn't buy those publications. Quote, they will sponsor anything that they believe will sell, end quote. One of her most damning statements is, quote, sympathetic as they might be, they cannot afford to be crusaders, end quote. Zora believes that there are people who care and that there are publishers who are interested in publishing stories of non-white people, but the racism of the public undercuts that mission. That's the toxic circle of it all. Allowing education about the lives of non-white people into white newspapers could remove the prejudices and help remove the barriers that separate people, but if those things aren't published, then the prejudices remain, then no one will buy the papers, so on and so on forever. Zora wants to see these things published. She knows they won't because people won't buy them. People never learn. 
about the similarities between all people and therefore it never ends. If only these works could be published, Zora believes, we could remove the quote-unquote illusions. Quote, the realization that Negroes are no better nor no worse, and at times just as Bonnie as everybody else, will hardly kill off the population of the nation. End quote. Bonnie being lovely or attractive, a poignant use of the word there. No better nor no worse. Everybody deserves a chance. That's all Zora had to say. Alas, many black writers like Zora could only find work or more consistent writing opportunities in black newspapers that were hiring at the time. Luckily for her, in the mid-50s, amidst a financial and health crisis, an opportunity rose along the Atlantic coast of Florida in the lovely town of Fort Pierce. There, a newspaper called the Fort Pierce Chronicle was owned by a black writer, and there, Zora set up a new chapter of her life. I actually got in touch with a publisher in that region. His name is Gregory Enns, and I found him because he has published about the fact that a lot of the Fort Pierce Chronicle's writing doesn't really exist anymore. And so I reached out to him to talk about the Chronicle and how we can help bring the Chronicle back. Here's Gregory. I'm Gregory Enns. I'm a fifth-generation Floridian. Uh, I live in Vero Beach, Florida, and I'm the publisher of Indian River Magazine, and several other magazines on the Treasure Coast and Space Coast of Florida. I founded the magazine group uh, 17 years ago after about a 25-year uh, newspaper career in Florida and Alabama. And so a lot of our magazines have been devoted to the history of the region, and we found that history brings all of our readers together. The uh, old-timers like the be refreshed about the facts and learn new facts about something they knew have known about a long time and the newcomers always want to uh, know about the history of the place that they've just moved to because um, it helps them orient themselves better to the new community but gregory tells me about a, a very interesting man the man who brought the fort pierce chronicle to life his name was charles e bolin quote a former teacher and basketball and football coach end quote his career in education turned in the 1950s to publication. For most of the 50s, he was a columnist for the News Tribune. His column was dedicated specifically to the black community in the region. It was called, frankly, the Colored Community News. But by 1957, Charles pivoted to his own endeavor. He could turn his focus as a columnist on issues for the black community and dedicate it to a new publication, the Fort Pierce Chronicle. The Fort Pierce Chronicle, it was founded in 1957 by a guy named Charles Bolin. And Charles Bolin was an African-American gentleman, and he had worked at the uh, News Tribune, which is the uh, white-owned newspaper. Um, incidentally, it was owned by my uh, great-great-uncles, Paul and Nicholas Enns at the time. Wow. But um, so... He worked in the distribution department, and later he w had a column from 1951 to 1957, and believe it or not, the title of the column was Colored People News. Wow. And so it, it contained, it was a weekly column with information about the African-American community. You know, typically at that time, the majority owned white newspapers didn't cover the black community very well or if at all and uh so the, the column was an effort to 
try to have some more news about the African-American community in the newspaper, but it really wasn't being presented in a way that Mr. Boland had total control over. So in 1957, he started the Chronicle, the Fort Pierce Chronicle, as uh, as a weekly newspaper. Um, I think later on he published it two times a week. Um, but he, it was a, kind of a one-man operation, um, usually just one section, like, you know, six pages or eight pages max. And he was pretty much the whole show. He, wow. um, he wrote the stories, um, took the photos, sold the ad, ads. That's a story I've heard before in newspaper creation in this era for black writers. They were, for the most part, running the show alone, or very nearly alone, throwing it all together to make the project work. Charles was the sort of enterprising man who could carry the project out single-handedly. And for years, that was the business. In fact, what makes Charles extremely remarkable to me is that many black newspapers had short lifespans. They wrote through the end of segregation and through the civil rights movement and into Vietnam, but many came and went. Not Charles. Nope, Charles had a lot to say, and he did not stop saying it. The Chronicle began in 1957, but Charles didn't retire. This is crazy to me. Charles did not retire from the newspaper business until 1992. 45 years. That is unbelievable. At times it was once a week, at other times it was twice a week, but Charles kept up the paper for 45 years. It was his passion. Clearly, it was a labor of love, which makes this next fact particularly upsetting to me. Very little of the Chronicle archive exists today. Well, here, here's the real tragedy of that whole thing is that um, the you know, it's a lot of the white newspapers you can um, access digitally online, they, they were kept historically. Um, and at libraries or I remember newspapers I worked at there was always a big room of bound volumes that held all of the previous issues and a lot of those have been um, copied and digitized um, and you know giving us a lot of access to historical information the tragedy about the uh, Fortress Chronicle is that the newspapers apparently were not collected or preserved in any way so there is no no library of the Fort Pierce Chronicle there's a very small collection that the St. Lucie County Historical Society has of Fort Pierce Chronicles from the 1970s I believe um, and we're trying to digitize that those with the uh, Indian River State College Library I mean it was his it was his uh, he was an entrepreneur he became an entrepreneur at that point it was his it was his baby he was getting he was selling the ads it was all his ad revenue i believe this building you know he had a the newspaper was on avenue d which is the main thoroughfare in the african community and he was I, when i was a reporter i remember him he was always wore a tie and he was out you know hustling with everybody else you know trying to ask questions and he also took his own photos and i just remember he always would have a those old style box cameras that you see kind of on Superman, the old Superman episodes oh, and sure. things like that. <laughs> sure. Um, and he had those. And he, was a, he was a really nice guy, very well respected. You know, always had, always seemed to have a tie on whenever he covered anything. So. 
It was a boots-on-the-ground, in-the-thick-of-it journalist, the real deal. Across the country, museums and archives are preserving what is left of the black-owned newspapers going back decades. Because white-owned newspapers, they just survived. There's plenty of archives. But the black newspapers, they disappeared from our collections. Gregory will talk about that more in a moment. But the tragedy of losing the Chronicle's archive, or rather it not being cared for, is twofold. One element is that Charles E. Boland's pride and joy could be lost. The other is that we may have lost writing from one of Florida's finest writers, because for a time near the end of her life, Zora Neale Hurston contributed to the one and only Fort Pierce Chronicle. The 1950s were hard times for Zora. It's a chapter that I've honestly not wanted to talk about a lot on this show, but you have to take the good and the bad, right? We can't always talk about her successes. Sometimes we have to talk about how it ended, despite how it ended. It brings me a sort of grief, but you need to know how it ended for her, because there's good parts, and there's bad parts. She was a vibrant, tough, adventurous person her whole life, but circumstances made it so that her last decade wasn't the warmest time for her. She published what would be her final book during her lifetime, Seraph on the Suwannee, in 1948, quote, but it received poor reviews, end quote. I think it's telling that two years later she published her essay about the lack of publication of writing from black authors in white newspapers. Uh, you know, the opportunities were, were running dry, and, and not just because of racism, she had her own personal strife. In 1948, she experienced a, a terrible public humiliation when she was falsely accused of inappropriately touching a child. It just, that did not happen. All historical accounts of this period of her life prove that this did not happen at all, unequivocally. Quote, the charges were patently false, end quote. But it was a huge, huge scandal, and it had such a massive impact on her public profile. Her reputation was in completely tainted by this moment in her life. She couldn't get work, her name had been dragged through the mud, and, and she needed to find some work. Florida called to her. Very few people were interested in writing from Zora Neale Hurston after that scandal, though some did. We'll talk about that in a second. But she actually took up work as a maid in Rivo Alto, a spot near Miami. She did work a bit on a famous trial, the trial of Ruby McCollum, which we will certainly be talking about next February because what a tale that is. It's a criminal story set in Florida that Zora wrote about. It's crazy. As the 1950s wore on, Zora was still looking for some stability. She was looking for a consistency in her life. She was traveling, she was moving from town to town. There's a lot of different places that she lived during this period. She was working in Cocoa, a technical library for the Pan American Airways at Patrick Air Force Base. That fell through. We'll tell you why in a second. The Chronicle came as an opportunity on her plate. Charles E. Bolin, saving the day. Zora Neale Hurston had been working at Patrick Air Force Base up on the Space Coast. That's about uh, 70 or 80 miles up the road from Fort Pierce. And uh, she was working at, at the Pan American Airways Library there. And she um, got fired for um, being too well, ed quote, too well educated. Huh. That is the exact quote that I have seen in multiple sources. She was fired for being, quote, too well-educated for the job, end quote. And so she kind of, she knew Florida, of course, very well, being from Eatonville. She had um, lived in St. Augustine. She had, uh, covered in the early 1950s, she covered the Ruby McCollum trial in Live Oak, a trial about a, a woman, an uh, African-American woman who killed her, 
her white lover who ha- happened to be a prominent physician. Again, a story for next year. It's a crazy story. You'll just have to wait and see. And um, at the time, I believe she was also writing um, stories for the Saturday Evening Post. But Okay, so I, I said that she was struggling to get some work during this period. That was true. But she was still getting a lot of things published in different publications throughout the country, including the Saturday Evening Post. It was pretty much the premier weekly magazine for most of the early 20th century. If you've heard of it, you probably know it in relation to the iconic covers that were painted by American artist Norman Rockwell. Look them up. You know them. In 1942, she published an interview with a black Floridian cowboy named Lawrence Silas, which is an amazing read. Go check it out. It's actually on the Saturday Evening Post's website still. Another one on their website uh, is about another trial of a black woman uh, named Laura Lee Kimball. That was published in 1950. So she still had work in the early 50s, but as as the decade wore on, as her last decade of her life had an impact, she... She just couldn't really find that comfort that she needed, especially as her health was starting to fail her. She was pretty much by that time um, on kind of a downward career spiral. Right. Um, she just really had a hard time connecting and getting jobs. And if you read some of her letters at the time, she's almost pleading with people. She had to plead with people for support or to get by a lot of times. Um, and in fact, um, I, I believe it was after the her job at the Patrick Air Force Base, she worked for a while as a maid um, on Miami Beach. Wow. So when um, Mr. Bowen started the Fort Pierce Chronicle, you know, it sounded like a great opportunity for her. So she um, came to Fort Pierce. We're not exactly sure whether it was 1957 or 1958, but she apparently started writing from uh, Mr. Boland very soon after he founded the newspaper in 1957. You know, as all small newspapers are, they, they don't pay very well, and I, you know, I'm sure she wasn't paid very well, and she had to supplement her income, and eventually she became a teacher at the um, all-black high school, which was called Lincoln Park Academy. I'm sorry, it's now known as Lincoln Park Academy. It was then known as um, Lincoln Park High School. Okay. And so she, she taught uh, English there, and some of the kids, you know, a very, she was very eccentric and, <laughs> you know, wore unusual clothing, and but she's, you know, had a silver tongue, and, um, you know, a few of the students... Um, including one that we we know very well, uh, Hassie Russ, really understood who she was and uh, connected with her and became devoted to her. Right. So I actually didn't ask this at the time of the interview, but I'm glad that I looked it up since. Gregory says a name there, a student of Zora's who cared for her deeply. He said her name was Hassie Russ. And this is clearly just one of those local things. If you're from Fort Pierce, send me an email if you know Hassie Russ, if you've been to her restaurant, which was called Granny's Kitchen. Hassie Russ ran a restaurant in Fort Pierce called Granny's Kitchen, which served the town for 53 years. The plates of food that I could find online, they look amazing, and and there were even pictures of Zora on the walls of this restaurant. But in 2018, Hassie and her husband, Charles, retired. They closed up the shop and, and set out a plan to enjoy some rest for the rest of their lives. 
In an article about the restaurant closing, there is an anecdote from Hassie. Quote, before opening the restaurant, Hassie Russ tested out her cooking on famed author Zora Neale Hurston, who taught Hassie Russ English at Lincoln Park Academy in the late 1950s. End quote. How about that? There's a quote here about Zora from Hassie. Quote, but she was a bit eccentric. Everyone at that time would dress all nice when they would go out in public, but Zora would put on these loud colors. She didn't care if they matched, and she would always wear a large straw hat. End quote. It's nice to know that Zora, even through the pain of her life, even into her 60s, Zora kept the attitude that made her so distinct. And, Hassie notes, Zora was a strict teacher, too, when it came to English and grammar. It makes sense to me. Zora was a researcher, an author, an anthropologist, a playwright. I would expect nothing less. Words meant a lot to her. So, Zora did some writing in the Fort Pierce Chronicle. She remained, in fact, in Fort Pierce until her death. Well... Fort Pierce literally was her last stop, right. um, and she had a correspondence with the Miami Herald editor of the time, always trying to get things published or to, to make some money. Her, her health was declining, and uh, she wasn't doing very well, and when she first arrived here uh, shortly afterwards, she didn't have enough money to pay for rent, and um, a uh, the African-American doctor in town, um, Dr. Clem Benton, had just built a little uh, rental house, and he allowed her to stay in that for free. And that's where she wrote a lot of things. She, it's it's still kind of a uh, historical museum, kind of a private one, because it's still owned by his descendants. Wow. My hope is that we can one day do an episode about all the places that Zora lived, from Eatonville to Fort Pierce, even up to Harlem, where she worked in the 1920s. We'll pay her home in Fort Pierce a visit. It's still there, if you're around. Make sure you give it a wave for Zora. Um, but it has a, you know, she had a, a little kerosene stove in there. She had a bookcase. Um, she used fruit crates for, for a bookcase. People would bring her, sometimes both with her failing health and so forth, sometimes um, the Bentons would often bring her bring her food because sometimes in her writing she would be so wrapped up she'd forget to eat or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then later on as her health deteriorated, she died of heart disease. Right. Like one of her students, Hassie Russ, who had a very uh, popular granny's kitchen in uh, on Avenue D in Fort Pierce. Oh, wow. Uh, she would she before she started the rest her granny's kitchen she would bring um zora neil hurston meals and so forth wow um because and she was one of her students and she she loved her she connected with her and she had a lot of sympathy for her and zora had a little dog named spot and um it was just a very informal she had a little garden um next to her house the tragedy of it was, you know, most people did not recognize her genius or know who she was. I think when they talked to her, they said, geez, this woman is really, you know, educated and she knows a lot and everything. But her genius just wasn't recognized um, here. And I don't, you know, a lot of it at the time, you know, a lot of her fame came posthumously. Right. She suffered a stroke in 1959, and in January of 1960, in a nursing home, she died just after turning 69. Her grave, unbelievably, was left unmarked. For 13 years, Zora's grave did not include her name. 
I find it to be a terrible thing that that happened to her. Even though her name was given back to her 50 years ago now, the 13 years that her body was just walked by, no one knowing that this tremendous author who had had such an impact on Florida, that she was there, makes me very sad. I try not to tell you too much about my feelings about these things, but that makes me very sad. But the good news is, Zora got her name back. Alice Walker, who you may have heard of, she's the author of the famous novel, The Color Purple. She discovered the grave and had it properly restored. We talked about this in the very first episode about Zora, goodness, five years ago now, but it's important that you know that story. There's a really wonderful piece of writing by Alice Walker about this part of, of her life, about finding Zora's grave. I, I recommend you giving it a read. But Zora is still buried there in Fort Pierce. Her grave has her name now. She rests in that town where she spent the last few years of her life. Despite the tragedy of her losing her name for a while, it brings me a lot of joy to know that her home in Fort Pierce was cozy for a time. She wrote articles, she made friends with students, she had a dog named Spot, she kept a garden, she wore colorful outfits, and she rested. But here's the thing. This is the, this is the thing that's so frustrating. When I found out that she did this writing in Fort Pierce for the Chronicle, I was like, oh, wonderful. We'll get to see a little bit of what she was writing about later in life, doing some journalism, all the experience of her life behind her. She's traveled around the world. She's seen the South. She's done anthropology. She's written plays. We don't know what she wrote in the Chronicle. We have an idea of one story. Here's what Gregory has to say. The only one that I've had access to on a kind of an eccentric gentleman, his name is Waldo Sexton, and he did, if you've ever been to Vero Beach, he created the uh, Ocean Grill restaurant in the Driftwood Inn. They're um, these beautiful, almost works of art of uh, refuse um, salvage from Palm Beach mansions. Wow. During the 1920s and 30s um, that he built these things with. And she became friends with him and I've seen, also seen, and she did, she did a big profile on him and his cattle operation, and um, they became very, they became good friends. But that's it. We we don't really have any publications of the Chronicle during the time that Zora wrote there through the late fifties. So we don't know what she wrote about. Maybe she wrote one article, two articles, three, a dozen. We don't know. And. We don't even know really when she arrived at Fort Pierce, and, and we don't know what she wrote about. How frustrating is that? There's just this gap in the archive because it's not there. When did the Chronicle come to an end? What, what was the end of the, the story of the Chronicle's existence? Well, the, the Chronicle ended. Um, Mr. Boland had gotten sick, and he, he had it for until uh, almost 35 years. Wow. Um, till 1992, um, he closed it for health reasons, and nobody continued it. 1992. It that that yeah. not to you know speak to com maybe this is just a common misconception. The idea that that I think we think of black newspapers existing at a time where Jim Crow and segregation were obviously the sort of reigning law of the land and, and we were having integration and we had these black newspapers because of the severity of the segregation but by 1992 obviously a lot of the the systemic issues weren't gone but the conversation of segregation was was in the past the fact that it existed into the 90s is is pretty remarkable yeah it, it, it was and he had a he had a big enough advertising base to keep him 
you know, operating. So, um, you know, uh, it, it, it really was. I think, I think it was both a labor of love. He, in fact, in the last year or two, he, he stopped publication just because of um, his health. And then readers actually asked him, you know, just encouraged him, were unrelenting about him starting it again. Wow. And so he began publishing again, but ultimately he had to, he had to close it. I, the reason I found you and the reason I reached out to you is because I saw that there was a, an article on online about you searching for uh, uh, more of these these newspapers. Can you talk a little bit about that that or that process or if listeners by any chance, how lucky would we be if listeners by any chance have some copy or some information about that? Can you talk about that, that project a little bit? Well, if they do, I would contact the St. Lucie County Historical Society because right. um, that's where... Um, they're they're being kept today and Harry Quatrero from the Historical Society is working with uh, and I'm also have been helping to coordinate it the Indian River State College uh, digital library to get the um, newspapers digitized but of course that requires a lot of man hours because you you know you have to take the newspapers put them on a big copier and then um, and then scan them digitally each page so um they're they're in the process of doing that it's been um kind of slow but we are making um we are making a little bit of progress and hopefully we'll continue to make some so i am turning this into a call to action do you live in or around fort pierce have you lived in Fort Pierce? Do you have a relative who lives in Fort Pierce? Did they live in Fort Pierce? Any connection to this region, St. Lucie County, anywhere around this town, by any chance, do you have a copy of the Fort Pierce Chronicle? Maybe it's in an old box under your bed or a filing cabinet in your closet or buried in a stack of other papers in the garage. Do you have a copy of the Fort Pierce Chronicle? Most importantly, from the late 50s. People have photographs, articles, newspapers dating back even way before that. By any chance, does your grandpa or your cousin who collects archives, do you work at an antique store? Do you have a copy of the Fort Pierce Chronicle? Because I know some people (laughs) who would be very interested in finding it. Zora spent her last years there publishing, writing, we don't know what about. I'd love to honor the life of Charles E. Bolin, and I'd love if somehow we could find just a little more from this paper. These black newspapers have been forgotten, and we can do our part in undoing that sin if only we could find something to add to the archive. We'll never have it all. It's impossible. But if by chance you have some, talk to the St. Lucie County Historical Society or the Indian River State College or our pal Gregory Enns. Every word that we have that's written by Zora now somehow has this extra weight to it, and if we could find more than we already had, I think that would be a massive gift to our state and a way to honor both Zora and Charles E. Bolin. The Chronicle gave Zora another chance and gave Charles E. Bolin an opportunity to spend four decades writing about his community. He created this with love and took his pretty much his whole life writing for the Chronicle. And it would be a shame if we couldn't add to that collection. Charles carried these stories on his back. He was on the ground collecting these stories for us 
The least we could do for Mr. Bolin is to help preserve the project that he dedicated his life to and remember the stories that he worked so hard for us to hear. So go searching, find some Fort Pierce Chronicle and bring this archive together. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend on Instagram or Facebook at WFM Pod. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Let me know what you like about the show. Send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Share it with a friend. The season is just getting started and we've got some really big stuff. Man, I've got an episode... In March, it's going to knock your socks off. (laughs) You don't even know how good it's going to be. But I cannot wait for everything that's ahead. So now's a good time for a friend of yours to jump on the show with us. I'd like to give a massive thank you to Gregory Enns for being my guest on this episode. And I just must say again, he is a publisher for the Indian River Magazine. Go check out their publication. He's got some amazing stuff. And one last call to action. The Fort Pierce Chronicle. They're out there. I know they are. Go see what you can find help rebuild this archive. I might go down to Fort Pierce myself just to do some digging to see if I can find something to help build this archive back up. Thank you. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, folks, that is it for me this week. Next week, baseball is back. It's the best time of year. Spring training is getting started in the state of Florida, and we're going to talk about a very, very unique figure in baseball history, one who had an impact in the state of Florida and is just someone I think you should know about. His name is Satchel Page. We'll be talking about Satchel Page and the Miami Marlins in next week's episode. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and as our dear Zora Neale Hurston said, go Gator and muddy the water. Have a great week. I will see you next Monday. 